Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Probably like many of you, during this pandemic, I've spent more time reading fiction than I normally do. It's a way of escaping the reality of our current world. And one of my favorite books that I just finished was by Richard Powers. It's called The Overstory. And I'm not the only one that thinks it's great. It won the Pulitzer back in 2019 and was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. It essentially tells the story of a number of different tree activists, but also about the trees that they're trying to save. I I can't do it justice. I'm very bad at describing fiction and why it's wonderful. But this story really made me think differently about the trees that surround us. Mostly, it made me think differently about timescale, about how a tree can live hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. And so the things that it experiences are at a very different rate compared to how we humans perceive time. And that got me wondering about climate change. Normally, when I think about the biggest threat to trees, I think of logging, deforestation, essentially humans using the trees for their own purposes. I don't really think directly about climate change, although I know I've heard about different kinds of uh, fungi and beetles and, and other ways in which trees have been affected by the climate But it got me thinking about the science of how trees are affected by climate change. And luckily for me, across my desk had just come a book by a writer named Zach St. George called The Journeys of Trees. In this book, he talks about the trees themselves, the people who love them and are trying to save them, and the future. Zach St. George, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hey, thanks for having me. So at the moment, I'm, I'm looking outside my home office window as we are building a deck. And by we, I mean uh, people that I hired because uh, I can't do that. But uh, we have this big pine tree, which is in the middle of our yard. And it's amazing to watch them try to navigate the root systems and all the things for this tree, which we love. But this tree really is the dominant character in this whole part of our block, which is kind of amazing. Its roots are going everywhere. It, it provides all kinds of shade. And yet, you know, here we are spending all kinds of money to avoid cutting it down, <laughs> which seems like the right thing to do, right? This tree is older than, than we are. And yet, 
so much of uh, trees are getting cut down and blighted. And the way that we look at our world, there's a huge difference, even from 100 years ago, of how much of the earth is populated by forests. So can you tell us a little bit about your interest in trees? Because it doesn't sound to me from your bio that you came at it from a sort of strictly conservationist perspective. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm I'm excited to hear that you're uh, that you're preserving your pine tree. I think that's a good move. But but yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I've kind of a previously a pretty fair weather tree fan. You know, um, nothing really specific in my life that that made me super interested or, or aware of trees. I think like most people, I kind of saw them as as you know sort of part of the background. My interest in a specific way kind of grew with this book and, and began with this trip to Sequoia National Park in the fall of 2014. California, as you, you're probably aware, was in a major drought and the trees were losing their needles and the scientists at the park had never seen anything like it. So I went and talked to them and uh, they were kind of for the first time considering a future where maybe these uh, iconic trees weren't going to be able to survive in the park. And I just thought that was really interesting and it, it got me interested in the future of forests and the idea of trees as sort of more mobile and dynamic characters than we usually imagine. Yeah, I mean, unless you're a fan of the Ents and Lord of the Rings, we really tend to think of trees as being rooted to the spot. In fact, a lot of the metaphors in which we use trees are about, you know, staying still. And yet uh, your book and also a, a recent Pulitzer Prize winning book by Richard Powers called The Overstory really talks about the migration of trees. And I thought it was really interesting that you start your book, which is called The Journey of Trees, and you start with the biggest trees in the world, the sequoias, which presumably haven't traveled very far, at least in the last thousand years, if that's how old they are. So let's start with describing the sequoias and how even these very old, massive trees are essentially migrating. Yeah, so the sequoias, they are the biggest trees in the world. For people who haven't seen them, they're, they really look like they're carved out of rock like they're they're just giant and monumental you know they they're just as as thick as a school bus tipped on its side and they really just give the impression of permanence and um the park itself is named after them giants or sequoia national park they were kind of one of the the drivers of the early conservation movement in this country which of course was about preserving them. So yeah, they really just give this really permanent impression, this really geographic kind of defining, they have this weight to them. But, you know, they're they're individual creatures and you know, a tree once it's rooted, it is pretty much permanent until it dies. There's some exceptions, but it tends to be pretty expensive once people uh, decide to move trees around. It has been done. But as species, as collections of individuals, yeah, even the sequoias are mobile. You know, every time one of their seeds lands in a new place, the species has shifted a little bit. And so, 
you know, even if the generation is a thousand years long, it's still a, a mobile, dynamic collection of individuals. And you can see that over time, and you can see that in the fossil record. And species like the sequoias move all the time. And what causes them to move in the case of trees is changing conditions and changing climate. And that is, let's describe a little bit about some of the mechanisms about how this is possible. I mean, you know, trees have different ways of uh, dispersing their seeds. So let, let's talk, maybe we'll take, we can take the sequoias as, as an example. How is it that the next generation of trees uh, finds a more favorable environment? Trees are an example of plants in general. I mean, trees are kind of the shape of plants that most people care about. So seeds have all kinds of different mechanisms. Some of them like uh, coconuts float around. You have maple leaves, which are helicopters to get a little bit away from their parent. You have oaks with acorns that maybe squirrels or something carries around. And other others are, you know, wind blown. So so there's all kinds of different ways that the seeds can get away from their parent, which is desirable because you want a space of your own. You don't want to be trying to grow up in, in the shade of your parent plant necessarily. So yeah, I mean that you know, plants have evolved all number of different ways of, of dispersing. From a, an observer's perspective, it seems that that dispersion is relatively random. And yet, in your book, you talk about how that that there's a kind of intentionality to it. I don't. I'm not saying that the that the seed has you know a brain and little legs and it like you know finds its perfect location. But like, tell us a little bit about how what are the forces of natural selection that kind of or of nature, I should say, that make it more likely that the seed will then grow in a in an area that is. In that, at least in that moment, better for that tree. Sure. So one way that scientists have kind of have laid out the three basic reasons that species and even individuals to some degree are where they are and, and not where they're not. So the first being abiotic conditions. So heat and cold and, and moisture and uh, sunlight and, and things like that. The second would be biotic conditions. So what, what else is living there? What, what do species, um, what, what other species are pre present and, and either maybe eating each other or um, out competing each other? And then the third is uh, movement. So basically the ability of the species to arrive in a suitable place. And so basically you think about a species like the giant sequoias, and so the, the places where they're at currently reflects a place that where conditions were suitable and they also managed to arrive. And so you're right, it is seed by seed, just, just falling to the earth is very random. But you have sort of the average location will kind of stay the same over time if the conditions stay the same. But as conditions change, you have kind of the, the spaces, the places where uh, seeds survive or don't survive changes. And so over time, the distribution of the species changes and it, it moves. And sometimes in our efforts to conserve trees, we actually make it more difficult for them to stay alive. So in the case of the sequoias, you describe how preserving and actually putting out fires was doing actually a lot of damage to the trees. Can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, so that's kind of the classic story of biology, which is kind of the story of unintended consequences. So, yeah, the sequoias, European Americans encountered them in the 1850s. Um, the native peoples in um, the Sierra Nevada had, of course, known about them for many thousands of years. But these European Americans arrived and pretty quickly uh, said, wow, these are really huge trees. It would be great to cut these things down and um, chop them up. And, you know, that would be a fantastic use of these huge ancient trees. So that started to happen. And pretty quickly, you had kind of early conservationists trying to prevent that from happening. So one of the earliest national parks in this country was Sequoia National Park, and then what became King's Canyon National Park, it's kind of sister park. But the, the problem was kind of that it was good to separate these trees from the loggers, that was good. But then kind of the people in charge of the parks also tried to prevent fires from burning through. And it, it turned out pretty quickly that that was maybe not the right thing to do because fires had kind of kept the ground open and uh, actually opened up the cones of the giant sequoias and beat back their competitors. There had kind of always been fires, whether it was started by lightning or lit by Native Americans in the area. And so pretty quickly the groves became overgrown and you stopped getting young sequoias. And by the 1950s, it was pretty clear that conservationists had made a big mistake by trying to preserve the trees and protect them from both the axe and from fire. And so really over the last 60 years now, or 50 years maybe, people have, have spent a ton of time and money and effort trying to reintroduce fire to the groves to kind of restore them to their pre-European state. And it's been quite difficult. The thing that always kind of makes, I think, boggles my mind and, and, and makes it hard to even conceive of of how to save these trees and how to or you know how to sort of live with them in harmony is that we we live on such different time scales. You know, like a sequoia's average lifespan is what, like a thousand years? Is that is that about right? Yeah, or yeah, I think yeah. so. I'm, you know, that's not necessarily um I might be stepping out a little bit to answer that, but certainly I mean they they can get up to three thousand years. So yeah, and so and 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 you know, if you think about where humans were a thousand years ago, life was very different. So you know, it's it's hard for us to even conceive of of that kind of slow growing, and yet the trees provide so much richness to our, our species in terms of like there are so many chemicals that we get from trees that you know we haven't even discovered all of the possibilities of that could potentially be used to ward off different bacteria or germs or, you know, other illnesses. Um, then there's just the whole oxygen thing, which is great. Um, <laughs> shade. Uh, there's just so much that trees give us. So can you tell us a little bit about sort of the the ways in which harvesting a tree, especially one like the sequoia for its wood, is probably the least useful thing to do? I, I'd have to agree with you. I think the early conservationists who worked to preserve the giant sequoias were absolutely making the right move. I don't think cutting them down was probably the thing to do. 
particularly we know now uh, we're, we're very focused. We like trees as carbon carbon sinks. You know, they take up carbon in the process of photosynthesis and um and that's great because uh, we currently have probably more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than we, we think is good. So old trees do a really good job of, of removing carbon dioxide. And so for all these different reasons, cultural amenities, just conservation, there's all these good reasons not to cut down old growth forests. That said, I mean, I, I think one of the things that we're confronting that's that's really difficult right now is the realization that these are individuals and they sprouted, let's say, a thousand years ago. At this point, that was quite a different world. The conditions where they're living are quite different. And it seems like the conditions are going to change and continue to change. So we're kind of beginning to confront the reality that these old iconic trees, not just the sequoias, but but old iconic trees around the world, are eventually not going to be able to survive where they're at. So then the question is, what comes next? Yeah, and you start your book with this really interesting story about a tree in Florida that got stuck. (laughs) It was a really great metaphor because... Uh, or a great image, at least for me, because like I think of all the trees that are stuck. I think of the pine tree <laughs> in my yard that is stuck, you know, and yet that was its problem, even though it was it had all kinds of blight thrown at it, fun- fungi and, and everything else. So t- tell us that story. So, yeah, there is this tree in Florida called the Florida Torea or Toria, depending upon who you ask. And so it lives in the in a small patch of the Florida panhandle overlooking the, the Apalachicola River. It had been quite local, confined to, you know, some dozen square miles, a pretty small area. But it was locally common. And then in the 1950s, it, all the trees, the terreas started dying. And what it seemed to be was this fungus. So various scientists and conservationists and uh, state and federal agencies kind of looked at it and said, shoot, it has this fungus. You know, they collected seeds to kind of preserve it in botanical gardens and um, sort of studied the fungus, but really didn't make a lot of progress in saving this tree. It was it was kind of in a steady decline in Florida. And then this woman named Connie Barlow came along in the early 2000s, and uh, she was a, a science writer at that point, and uh, she, she now I don't know what he, what she calls herself now, but at that point she was an evangelical uh, evolutionary e- evangelist, and she thought the problem was not actually the fungus, and and she thought the problem was actually that this tree had gotten stuck in Florida, and the species she thought should have migrated north at the end of the Pleistocene, at the end of the, the last ice age, uh, eleven thousand years ago, and for whatever reason it hadn't been able to go back north. And so it had gotten stuck and she thought that it was out of step with the climate that it would like. And so the fungus was actually a symptom of that. She thought like polar bears in zoos will sometimes get algae on their fur and turn green. And so she thought the, the solution was pretty simple, which was to move this tree north. And so she got a group of volunteers together and started sending them seeds all across the eastern United States. And and that sounds like 
a great idea until you talk to an ecologist and they tell you about the dangers of introducing a non-native species. Right. So again, you know, one of the, the favorite stories in biology is the story of unintended consequences. And, and when you start talking about trees, especially in the Eastern uh, United States, really the, the, the story that you keep hearing over and over is of people moving species around and lo and behold, the species gets away and does terrible damage. So we've had in the Eastern United States, American chestnut trees were killed off by a blight that was introduced from um, Eastern Asia. We've had uh, American elm trees killed off also by a, a fungus from Eastern Asia. Right now we're having ash trees killed off all over the Midwest and East and um, spreading West. And so the lesson has really been, yeah, we should kind of keep things more or less as they are. We should keep ecosystems basically as they are if we can. When we're trying to restore ecosystems, we want to restore back to some baseline, basically the way things looked at a, a certain point in time, which tends to be you know, before the arrival of Europeans. And so this idea of, of moving a species to save it, basically release it into the wild somewhere north or upslope, really flew directly in the face of that. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So one of the really surprising facts about trees that I uh, recently learned about is this idea that they can communicate you know, we can think of the the tree as as essentially having. I mean, if it's not it's not a nervous system the way we think of it in in animals, but there is a way in which they can send off signals, and and then those signals can be received. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and the sense that maybe in a kind of very slow scale, one that we have a hard time conceptualizing because it's so different from our lifespan. You know, trees have their own way of talking to each other and, you know, p potentially protecting each other or protecting uh, the forest. Right. I think trees certainly have some kind of awareness. 
I, I didn't delve too deeply into the so-called wood wide web, which is how many people have, have uh, termed this. Yeah, I think trees certainly have some kind of awareness. You know, I think it's easy to stray into anthropomorphism when you're trying to explain what that is. But yeah, they, they share nutrients between their roots and through uh, mycorrhizal networks. So those are, are symbiotic fungi that either are coating tree roots or uh, embedded within tree roots even. I have to confess, this, this book is, is really a lot about, a lot about people. And I, I get less into trees themselves as being. I, I don't delve too deeply into the experience of a tree, with a couple exceptions. And one of those was in Quebec, I went to a plot in the forest that, that scientists had laid out. I went with a forester, and he showed me a device that was pretty cool. It was called a dendrometer. And what it was, was basically a piston that was attached to the side of the tree. And it recorded basically when the trunk swelled and shrank. And what you could see, it kind of looked like a, like a heart rate monitor. And basically it, the tree swelled at night when it was cool and there's plenty of moisture. And then its trunk kind of shrank during the day when it was hotter and there was less moisture available. And so it did have this kind of dynamic day-by-day experience that really surprised me. It was kind of the first experience I had had of a tree as kind of a, a being that experiences life day-by-day. Day. Because, um, yeah, you do tend to think of trees as kind of almost geological. You know, they can live for a 1,000 years or 5,000 years in some cases. So you don't really think of them kind of having a intimate experience with each one of those days. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the people in your book, because I, I agree with you, you know, <laughs> the trees are interesting. And, you know, the people maybe because we're all narcissists deep down are uh, even more interesting. So, you know, we have all, already a kind of stereotypical notion of the tree hugger. And this idea of a, of a person who puts the life of trees above and beyond industry, above and beyond the needs of, of human beings. And, and there's a lot of reasons now which we can see why, why that actually might be better for our species, not just the species of trees. But it certainly does seem to be a particular type of community. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, how true is that stereotype? And what, what were the surprising things about the people that you met in this journey? I think the, the archetype of the tree hugger, they do exist, certainly. And, and I, I met a few of them. I met one gentleman in particular in New Zealand. Um, he, unfortunately, just for kind of narrative reasons, didn't make it into the book. But, you know, he, he, he didn't wear shoes and was bearded and had a Hawaiian shirt and was certainly the closest to a Lorax I've ever met in person. So, you know... There is kind of the archetypical tree hugger, and I certainly experienced them. But I think the thing about trees is that kind of everyone is familiar with them, and, and everyone kind of loves trees. So I met all kinds of people, and everybody had a favorite tree. People would always take me to see their favorite tree, and they, you know, I have a bunch of pictures of people with their favorite trees. So I think sort of a, a broad swath of humanity really likes trees. It's kind of like, they're almost like bird people. It can be a little obsessed. 
the other commonality that I found between people that I interviewed in the book, you know, these people are confronting a lot of changes. I mean, I, I talked about the idea that that perhaps giant sequoias or giant redwoods or any of these these old iconic trees, sort of the realization of climate change is the realization that at some point these trees won't be able to survive where they are. And, you know, it's not clear when that point is, but you are looking at a future where things are really different from how they are now, different in some kind of painful ways. So, you know, I met a lot of people who were sort of looking at that future and uh, really mourning it, but at the same time, kind of continuing to try to do good and try to, you know, work on some small task that they thought could be helpful in the future. Sometimes even not worrying too much about the results, just sort of, you know, this is how I can be useful. In this case, it it often involved trees. So I think that was another commonality I found. So one person I think that stands out in your book, you start your book with it, you end with that person, you almost end with it. She features all the way through is one that we've already talked about is Connie Barlow. You describe how, you know, you would you would wake up to many emails from her and the kind of passion with which she she worked uh, on this problem. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about whether Connie was just really a singular character amongst the ones that you met or whether there's something about, you know, this 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 idea that we need to conserve trees that that really uh, engages a lot of passion in people and why that might be. Yeah, Connie Connie Barlow is a a very interesting person. I first met her, well, I met her by email, I think in, I was just looking, I think, uh, October 2014, or excuse me, maybe 2015. But anyway, she um, she's the one who decided to move this Florida Terea north from Florida. She's kind of at the center of this controversy over the idea of people moving trees north. And I would say that, yeah, I, I think if if that wasn't how she decided to change the world, she, she would have been doing something else. I think she's very much an activist spirit. And I was interested in her as kind of a uh, someone to learn more about and kind of as a, as a central character in my book, both because of that activism and, of course, because of the controversy that it attracted but also because she she really embodied what I was just talking about, kind of that spirit of acceptance and sort of sort of trying to do good despite long odds and um, despite kind of the awareness that maybe you as an individual can't do too much to <laughs> leave the world a better place, and you know, seeing that and trying to do something anyway. So I think that's what interested me in in Connie Barlow. So I just want to remind our listeners that Zach St. George's book, The Journey of Trees, a story about forests, people and the future is now available at booksellers everywhere. So let's talk about the future. And I think, you know, I want to start at the place where the future seems to be coming more quickly than elsewhere, where change is happening every single year, there are new records set. Um, and that is uh, close to the Arctic, uh, where we're seeing such strong effects of climate change. Can you tell us a little bit about black spruce and, and the other trees that are being affected in, in Alaska and other parts of the world that are close to the Arctic Circle? 
the boreal forest is one of the biggest biomes on earth that stretches across Canada and Alaska and across Siberia into Scandinavia. And um, it's kind of characterized by, you know, of course, harsh conditions, cold temperatures, long summer days, long winter nights. Much of it was glaciated during the ice ages. So you tend to have kind of poor soil conditions in a lot, lot of it. And so I focused on black spruce, which is, is kind of one of the really dominant species of tree in North America, stretching all the way from Newfoundland to Alaska. And it was a tree I was really familiar with growing up in Alaska. They're really scraggly, kind of dusty, dirty looking trees. They tend to grow in wet ground. They're the famous trees of the, the drunken forests. They're the one, the trees that tip over when permafrost thaws and look really disheveled. And so the reason I was interested in black spruce is because they were a good example of how rapidly and dramatically forests can change with slight changes in conditions. So the black spruce forest, like I say, it stretches all the way across Canada from Newfoundland to Alaska. If you've spent any time driving through Canada or Alaska, uh, it just seems to go on forever. But what the fossil record shows us is that actually it's pretty new. It's only been around for about 5,000 years in Alaska in its current state. And before that, you had a, a pretty different forest of white spruce, which is a relative. And then before that, you had a forest that was mostly deciduous, so birch and cottonwood trees and just these, these three really dramatically different forests that have lived in Alaska since the last ice age. And they've shifted one to the other, you know, in a matter of centuries. So pretty dramatically over this huge area to have a completely new forest appear. And really what did it was these small shifts in climate that we had during the, the Holocene epoch. And each of these shifts, first it was warmer than today and drier, and then it got a little wetter. And then you had a little cooler and wetter. And it became kind of like today, the climate became like it is today. And that's when you had the modern forest appear. So it was, it was just, uh, it, it's a good example of how quickly and dramatically forests can change in response to small amounts of climate change, even smaller than what we're expecting. And, you know, we often hear about the effect that melting ice will have on our ocean levels and, you know, so forth. But we don't often hear about sort of how just trees dying out because of climate conditions, sort of what the negative effects will be there uh, other than fewer trees and, and potentially then an accelerated warming. Were there any other kind of surprising things that you learned about as now the, the conditions are changing much more quickly than the trees can adapt to? Yeah, I think actually the, the sea level rise is a, is a great, almost a, a metaphor or counterpart for um, what's going to happen to forests. I think we're all fairly familiar with the idea that, you know, as oceans rise due to, you know, thermal expansion, as they actually warm up, and then also uh, the addition of uh, melted ice from our polar ice caps and uh, Greenland, 
we're familiar with the idea that the seas will rise a little bit, a little bit each year. And, you know, that's, that's something that's fairly subtle. You, it goes up, I don't know how much each year, but kind of day to day, you wouldn't really notice that. But then also there's these big effects, like we have acidification of the oceans and these bigger storm surges and more powerful hurricanes. So we kind of have like a quiet side and a loud side to uh, sea level rise. And I think kind of the same thing applies to um, the changes that we can expect from in forests. And so the quiet side is that you have, you know, species uh, ranges shifting north or upslope or towards the poles. If you're in the southern hemisphere, you have some species becoming more common, others becoming less common. But then you have this kind of loud side, which is tons of trees died during a drought and a whole landscape suddenly goes brown. Or you have this huge fire we've seen in California and Australia and all over, really. And it's smoky and um, just kind of horrible. And so there's there's kind of this quiet side that we may or may not notice, and then also the catastrophic side. And you, you describe another one of those, which was the, the Category 5 hurricane that destroyed a lot of the Florida trees that we started talking about. Yeah, you know, that was just kind of an example of why rare species, species that are rare and isolated, are in greater danger. And that's just because one kind of small accident or natural disaster can uh, do a lot of damage to the entire species. So yeah, kind of at the end of my reporting, uh, I went to actually visit the Florida Tereas there on the Panhandle. And just a couple months before I visited, Hurricane Michael had swept across the Panhandle and really flattened the area. So I actually wasn't even able to see any Florida Tereas in the wild because um, the park before the storm had been a a towering forest with uh, all these huge trees and the Florida Terea was kind of an understory tree. But when I went, all the big trees were down and it was just a tangle. It was a big mess. So the, the rangers at the park, one of them drove me down to the spot where he thought we might be able to see one, but it was too, um, there's too many down trees and, so it, that just wasn't even possible. I mean, the way you describe it, it really does sound like the botanical garden is now the zoo of trees where, you know, it might be the last place where you can see certain species. Anyway, it's just, it's to me, it's really interesting to hear us start to think about and talk about trees as a set of species that we need to protect and preserve in ways that are quite similar to a lot of animals that, that we, you know, is more obvious to us what their, what their plight is. Right, right. Well, you know, I was really concerned with this question of should people move species north or really anywhere we think they'll do better as a method of conservation. And the reason was is because it is a controversy. It flies in the face of how we've done conservation for a century. And, you know, I'm I'm a reporter, so I'm drawn to controversy. But I do want to say that you know, the botanical gardens and the arboretums are doing really important work. They're doing what zoos have done, which is collect seeds and, you know, whole plants from all over the world just to have backups. And and so I think, you know, this idea of assisted migration, moving species around is really interesting. And I think it'll probably be, become more prevalent over coming years. But I do think just uh, having the possibility of the species existing in the wild 
as represented by these seed banks and uh, kind of living collections in botanical gardens and, and arboretums. I think that's really important. Well, as we spend more time in our homes staring out our windows, I hope uh, every one of our listeners has a tree somewhere in their view that they can gaze upon. Uh, Zach, do you have a tree that you can look at? You know, I have a lot of trees. I'm here in Baltimore. There's none in my yard, but I've got plenty around me. So Awesome. Well, Zach St. George, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Well, I certainly won't be cutting down our pine tree anytime soon. And as I gaze out onto it, I appreciate its lifespan, what it adds to us, the shade it gives us. And I'm a little bit less annoyed about all the pine needles that continue to fall. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rayhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs> <laughs> 